0: Oh, and welcome to the LARB Radio app, brought to you by Reader Support LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, Editor-at-Large for LARB, and I'm joined remotely today by my co-host, LARB's Managing Editor, Medea Ocher, and LARB's Gender and Sexuality Editor, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Kate. Uh, hi, Kate. <laughs> Jinx. <laughs> yeah. Hi, guys. And this week we're recapping the best of 2020, some of our favorite collections from this year.
1: Which obviously feels, as I'm sure our listeners feel too, feels a little weird because, I mean, without putting too fine a point on it, 2020 was a garbage year. (laughs) It was so bad. And it's just like so much stuff that I'm just like so glad to be heading into 2021. You know, it just seemed like trauma after trauma after trauma piled on top of each other, culminating with... We had to put our cat of 11 years down this past weekend. So it is literally, I cannot wait to jump into 2021 and hope for like a better year because this has been a rough one.
0: I'm sorry, Eric, that's awful. Oh,
2: oh thank no. you, thank you. I
0: also lost my dog of uh, 10 years this year as well. So I know how that feels. I'm really sorry.
2: Oh, so sorry to both of you guys.
0: Thank you. Thank
2: you. R.I.P. your pets. <laughs>
0: you know, it feels like just a drop in the bucket compared to so much else. And I think that sense of constantly holding your own life in suspension and feeling like there's this huge flow of pain and churning suffering going on elsewhere has a strange effect. And it's like a lot of the things I saw and read and watched, I barely even remember because Mm. I've, I've just, I think the time signature has not been helpful in keeping track of when things happened. So I actually struggled to even make a list because I feel like I lost a lot of time and I'm not sure where it
1: went. <laughs> it is also the case, did you guys experience life this way this year in which time seemed to both, like you're saying, Kate, it's just like a lost year in many ways, but it also, time moved really differently. Like there felt like there were different eras or even epochs of the pandemic because of how dilated time became. And actually in reviewing, and we'll obviously get into this in a minute, but in reviewing you know, some of the TV shows, for example, that really stuck with me this year, it felt like, oh, right, that's from the second age of the pandemic. And it feels like it was like five years ago. You know, like weeks also feel like years. So there's a very weird temporal distortion that I think all of us are going through.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. And it was very difficult to put together this list because I also couldn't, I couldn't remember anything and there weren't any distinctions for me. There were, as you were saying, Eric, like kind of distinctions in terms of like different epochs of the pandemic, like let's say at the very beginning when we thought it was going to be two weeks (laughs) and I was very active and then everything else. And so it was kind of a difficult year to kind of go back through and look through the stuff that I watched or read because I don't remember most (laughs) of it. I did recall some of it by making this, putting this list together. And that was actually kind of nice. It was a good, it was a good exercise.
1: All right. Well, should we get to it?
2: Let's get to it.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about books. All right. Kate, you start. Okay. So speaking of epics of the pandemic, I feel like the first part of it was nature's healing. Nature will heal while we're all home. And there was a lot of hope and hopefulness. And certainly I thought maybe, you know, this will bring radical change. And so there was this excitement as much as there was dread and fear. And that's what I really remember, you know, from the beginning, like the shots of the Venice Canal and so my first choice is not a book. It's actually an essay that I read and I felt like was very clarifying about climate change. And of course the pandemic you know, is a symptom of climate change and it shows you, I think it's also a wake-up call. What I always feel like is like, you're not gonna be able to buy anything when you're running away from the fire. You know, It seems like, yes, this is what life is like when nature asserts itself and it's difficult. And you would think that this would be, galvanize people and I'm just not sure it really has but so this was an essay by me and Chris that I read in the London Review of Books it was called Is It Okay to Have a Child and it's actually going to be a book I believe next year and this was just such a clear-eyed brilliant really provocative piece of writing about you know essentially it's really about taking on the responsibility of climate change as an individual versus kind of holding corporations accountable for what they've done. And also this kind of like racialized ideas of overpopulation. And that's one of the main arguments of some environmentalists is like, you know, overpopulation is a huge part of the problem. And so Chris really looks at that and also kind of delves into the shared delusions of left and right wing perspectives on climate change. And I think that that kind of middle ground of like where left and right wing ideas about let's say, you know, vaccines or politics or all these things where these kind of two branches meet was probably like one of the things I thought about the most this year that I was kind of obsessed with, especially in relation to vaccines. It just came up for me again and again. So I loved this essay and you can actually listen to her reading it on the London Review Books site and I thought that was great. And then I'll just touch on some books of guests that we had on. So, I loved Wayne Kostenbaum's book, Figure It Out. And we talked to Wayne and just found that conversation so inspiring. And I really liked that book because it had so many assignments for writing and ways to kind of generate material and ideas. And in a year where I just did not feel very inspired, having some kind of formula I think is so helpful. Good list. And then I also really enjoyed our conversation with Harry Dodge about his book, My Meteorite. And there's such a beautiful scene in that book where Harry's dog dies and he goes to bury him close by, actually, to where I live in the Arroyo. And he meets someone else that day who's just buried their dog. And I felt like the experience was so intense for me and so emotional. And I don't know if I'd ever seen it depicted in fiction or anywhere in quite the way of what it feels like to lose a pet. And I just thought that was so beautifully done. And also, I really enjoyed our conversation this year with Percival Everett about his book Telephone which I was just such a strange novel. I couldn't tell what was going on. It was so pastiche at times, then it was surreal, then it was realist. It was like totally all over the place. And reading it really made me want to think again about fiction and what novels can do. And I know people always say that, oh, like this person changed what the novel can do. But um, this book really did, I think, show me the capacity of what a novel can do and a slipperiness that I think is really just when you can't quite pin down what genre a novel is written in is such a cool feeling. And then just in my own reading this year, and I'm sorry that I'm going on too long, but books is like the one thing that I can really talk about this year because I continue to read. So this was my year of falling in love with Natalia Ginsburg. Like, I feel like she came up a lot, especially because I think I read Maggie Nelson in The New Yorker talking about Ginsburg's essay, Winter in a Bruzy. And that was right in the beginning of the pandemic. And that was a beautiful piece by Maggie. And then. In trying to, you know, constantly save bookstores, I ordered like more books this year probably than I've ever ordered online before. And so I bought a bunch of Natalia's books. And um, The Dry Heart is a novel that's really short, that's like perfect for my short attention span. And it's just so piercing and so intense. And it's like 100 pages. So that was great. And about a bad husband who meets his end. The book that I actually recommended the most to everyone this year is a book that was recommended on our show by Garth Greenwell. It was Barbara Browning's The Gift, which I just loved so much. It was so funny, so smart. I guess, you know, it's autofiction in probably one of the most interesting ways that I've seen done because I think it's a story of what something that really happened to Barbara Browning, which is she makes this connection with someone online, but then their identity is very much in question. So as much as, you know, she's playing with the persona of who she is, this other person's persona is just a persona, is a fiction. So there's like a lot of real and fake meeting in the in the book. And um, it's a real celebration of making art just for the fun of it and for the kind of communion of it. And a lot of it takes place online. So I also thought that was a good thing for this year. And I just loved it. And it was really, it helped me a lot, actually. Sounds great. That's my list.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely was like writing down while you were speaking like some of those titles that I can't wait to take a look at. So I have three. So two of them were guests that we had on the show. The first of which is Ekwaki Mezzi's The Death of Vivek Oji. And I love that book, both because it kind of, it captures the way in which a gender non-binary Existence operates outside of primarily when we read about sexuality, or at least like the stuff that ends up being filtered through to me, it tends to be from a western, usually u s. centric position. And so here to kind of see the experience of a gender non-binary character narrated and explored from the position of Nigeria and also to kind of learn a lot about the the local cultures. In Nigeria, this kind of phenomenon called Niger wives, which are foreign wives who marry into families in Nigeria, was just fascinating. And it's both, Emezi's writing is at once like really, it's that perfect combination for me, which is very lush writing and a gripping story. Usually you don't get both at the same time. It's usually lush writing and there is very little story or too much story and not enough great writing. But that one I really, really enjoyed. And then um, as we were talking about at the top of the the show, my cat recently died of 11 years. And so I was thinking a lot. It had really moved me, Sigrid Nunez's novel, What Are You Going Through? When I read it, it's basically, as listeners will know, it's the story of a friend, basically, who agrees to help her friend die effectively and to both be there with her, assist a little bit, you know, kind of be involved in the process and also learn how to grieve with her as she's dying. And it's a beautiful, beautiful novel, very, in a sense, like slow and not a lot happens, but what Nunez is grappling with is enormous. And thinking about as my pet, we were having to make the decision to put her down after a long struggle with some intestinal issues. It just made me think about how precious that life is and how much we don't actually think about how we prepare for death or how to grapple with it, right? Most of our culture, especially in the West, is about running away from death. And I think that Nunez's character in the book as a whole kind of has to really grapple with it in a way that I found really powerful and moving. The last one that I have is to kind of Kate's mention earlier about novels that play really interestingly with genre was Charles Yu's Interior Chinatown. So I know that you guys interviewed him. I wasn't able to be on that particular show, but so I read it much later. And I just loved that novel. It's both like really interesting from a form perspective. You know, it's written like a screenplay, but then it, it has other ways of manipulating form that are quite interesting. And then also the way that it engages a way of thinking about how and what and who registers as oppressed in contemporary life and in many ways it touches on the work of or it can be in conversation with the work of another guest that we had kathy park hong and her book minor feelings and asian american reckoning and i just thought it was really fresh really interesting and thoroughly enjoyed it so those are my recommendations for this year what i loved
2: well, That also sounds good all right This is going to be a surprising direction to take this. but So my favorite book for this year is a very small book published back in 1989 by a little old lady in England named Hazel Holt. The book is called Gone Away, and it's the first book in a series of mystery novels. It's called the Mrs. Mallory Mystery Novels. This book was sent to me out of the blue by a friend of mine who also happens to be A novelist, and I didn't know that she was sending it to me, but I got it in the mail, and and the cover is hideous. It has got like a weird cat on it. It looks like a seventh grader made it. No offense to the graphic design skill of seventh graders. Actually, they're probably pretty advanced. But so the book is the first in a series of mystery books. The main character, the detective Mrs. Mallory, is a retired literature professor. She's a romanticist, and it's a very quiet, very cozy mystery novel. There is a death in it, but most of the book is really spent on baking and church get togethers. She has two pets. She has a dog and a cat and she really loves both of them. She lives alone. And so she's really into the dog and the cat and feeding them. There's a lot of time of her opening tins and giving them food. And something does happen. So it takes place in this very quiet village called Taviscombe. I have no idea if this village is real or not. It's it's apparently on the seaside in England. And this very risque, sort of sexy American woman turns up dead. And Mrs. Mallory sort of very quietly, very unobtrusively, and really calmly goes about solving this mystery. And it was just a total, it was a total pleasure to read. (laughs) Just a total pleasure to read. These books are now out of print, unfortunately, but you can still find them online. So the copy I got, I think just was just somebody had just put it out. But there's like a lot of tea drinking, baking. The mystery is solved eventually, but Mrs. Mallory is never really in trouble, nor does she ever really super concerned or stressed. She is stressed at times, but It's not overly stressed. And there's a favorite part of mine, and I recommended this book to everybody this year. There's a favorite part of mine where it's kind of like the climax, and this is not giving anything away, but it's kind of the climax of the book. And it's cold and she's in the rain and she's outside. And the last line of the chapter is something like, I was cold and it was dreadful out. And so I decided to go back to the warmth of my kitchen and the comfort of my animals. And then it it just ends. She does go home and hang out with them. And I was like, well, isn't this just the best?
1: <laughs> I love that. I love a cozy mystery. <laughs> that's like that's a great recommendation. I feel like I want to re- mainline that right now.
2: <laughs> it's great.
0: Had you read that book already when we interviewed Atessa Mushbeg about death in her hands?
2: No, I hadn't. I read this book sometime, I think, early summer. I really recommend it. It's just, it was totally immersive. It was cozy. It was quiet. And I appreciated there was like a whole section where she drives an elderly lady for an annual exam and looks for parking and then picks her back up and takes her home. It was great. It was really great. So that book is called, again, for everyone, in case you you want to check it out, it's called Gone Away. And it's the first book in the Mrs. Mallory Mysteries. And Mrs. Mallory, her first name is Sheila. That makes it nice too. <laughs> um, <laughs> One of my favorite names. Yeah. It's a good name. And the book is written by Hazel Holt and you can still find them online. And I've been kind of looking for the vintage version of the second one so that I could see what happens next to Sheila and her friends. So that's my number one. I've got some honorable mentions. They are the book by Sigrid Nunez that you recommended, Eric. What are you going through? Yeah. I really thought it was fantastic. And unfortunately, I couldn't be there for that interview, but I really enjoyed the book. Death in Her Hands by Tessa Masheg. I really thought that was fantastic. Also, sort of a mystery novel, but it'll probably. Is. I think it
0: sounds a bit like your friend Hazel. There's some overlap between a woman on her own who loves her animals trying to solve a mystery of it's a, true. a beautiful woman.
2: Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. I would say that Mrs. Mallory is much more grounded than the (laughs) character in Death in Her Hands and very much has her head on her shoulders. And when she doesn't, she eats a piece of cake and reminds herself that it's there. But Death in Her Hands, I thought, was also a very good book. My entire list is women, actually. I just noticed Weather by Jenny Ophel, I really enjoyed and really liked reading. And also another book, kind of what you were talking about, Kate, in terms of doesn't really help you figure out how to think about climate change in any concrete way but it gives it a sense of both intellectual rigor, resignation and humor and that combination I think is a worthwhile one. And then okay, my last one. I wasn't sure if I should put this on the list but I think in the end I I want to. It's The Lying Life of Adults by Elena Ferrante. I really enjoyed that book also even though I had some well, I mean, you know, I was going to say I had some reservations about it but I I wholeheartedly endorse it. So those are my books of 2020. I don't know how I got through them, but we did it. All right. What's next? Movies?
0: Yeah. Let's talk about some movies. This is a category where I really fall down.
1: Even in a normal year, Kate doesn't see that many movies.
0: (laughs) I don't really go to the theater much. And now I didn't go to the theater. I think I saw one thing. I mean, I had a, a couple of screenings. I used to have this little underground cinema in my studio that stopped. I just, movies are, I really like to see movies with people, even though I don't mm, get, to totally. I don't find myself challenging myself much at home with what I watch. So I'll just keep this as short as possible. There was a series, I think I talked about it on the show at, at UCLA in the beginning of the year called American Neorealism. And one screening they had that I wasn't able to attend was this movie called Dusty and Sweet McGee. It's a 1971 film by Floyd Mutrux, and this is one of the weirdest movies I've ever seen. I was drawn to it because I had heard that Tom Anderson, who made Ellie Place itself and other movies I really like, that it was one of his favorite films, and it's just so weird. It it's hard, so it it has a lot of non actors in it, and also some real actors. I guess maybe someone who was on Father's nose best as like a Nazi heroin addict. and it, The filmmaker interviews real addicts or they're acting, but they're telling stories about their lives. And it takes place all over Los Angeles. And there's just tons of montages of like cool 60s rock radio going and just like neon expanse. And then people like in really, you know, kind of ugly like valley parking lots waiting to get drugs and it it just veers all over the place and you're just so unsure if I mean you know it can't be completely real and I don't know how ethical it would have been to actually give these people drugs to let them shoot up because there's lots of scenes where they're taking heroin it's just so strange and I think that being so unsure of what's fabricated and what's really taking place for the entire movie Leaves you in a sense of suspension that was really fascinating to me. And I think I just love seeing like Los Angeles on film in this way of pretty like unremarkable, but yet completely classic, iconic scenes of LA, just boulevards never ending and this kind of like depression of people on dope. Anyways, it was just, it was great and I really recommend it. And basically, the thing that got me by this year was Canopy.
1: Oh, the service. Yeah.
0: canopy, But it's so amazing to be able to select from both like really wonderful films that are you know, recognized and then just really strange little shorts or bad like 80s movies, you know, that you would never seek out. But being able to select from them, I think it's kind of like that video store experience where you actually are looking at stuff and you're like, oh, OK, like this looks interesting. But it's not like Netflix where there's, you know, 150 films on there at a time. This It seems so expansive, so exhaustive, and it's just thrilling. And it's free. I watched some great Les Blank movies on there. And yeah, and just I was really grateful for the Criterion Collection, for all the movie theaters who are mm-hmm. doing screenings, you know, the loss of movie theaters and independent movie theaters. The prospect of that, which is seeming more and more real to me, is just such a heartbreaking development of of the pandemic. So hoping that people can keep them afloat.
1: Yeah, totally terrifying. Just to bounce off of what Kate is saying, I think I've mentioned this in previous shows or on the show before. You know, before the pandemic, my husband and I, we went to like three or four movies a week. I mean, we went to movies all the time. And, you know, a lot of that was blockbuster garbage, not gonna lie. We're not all Kate Wolfs, but (laughs) I'm very Sad about the potential loss of local independent theaters like the Lemley for example, you know, that fills such an important space in terms of just like bringing foreign films that... Because also nothing is like seeing a movie in the theater. I mean, that's what I think I miss the most, right? And it's like, that's not going to be fixed by getting a 60-inch screen TV or anything like that. It's just the... And being there with other people, especially when like you hate a movie and you're like, you look around and you hear the collective sighs and you're like, oh, it's not just me. And now we're all enjoying hating this movie together. But yeah, I'm sad to report that the last movie we saw in theaters, which my husband loved, but I was like, it's fine, was Pixar's Onward. (laughs) So that shows you like about the kind of cliff that we're about to jump over after after Kate's more lofty recommendations and definitely seconding the recommendation of Canopy. Canopy is also incredible because it's films you literally can't find anywhere else, but which are like truly important to the history of cinema. It's an incredible resource. And as Kate said, it's free, which makes it all the more incredible, especially nowadays. There are two films that I saw this year. And when I say, f- I think it's like I don't really consider any Netflix original. Like, a f- I mean, I probably should, but it's when I was thinking of films, it was movies like this. So there was Palm Springs, which is a very quirky kind of fantasy movie with Andy Samberg set in Palm Springs, which is one of my favorite places in the world, where it has a kind of, it's a quirky romance, a really dark romance, actually, that all revolves around a kind of Groundhog's Day-like scenario where he keeps waking up over and over again and this other woman that he's with wakes up over and over again and an endless wedding day, which is, I think, everybody's version of hell. No matter how much you like weddings, to have to relive a wedding every single day for eternity is a nightmare. But well, Kate disagrees.
0: <laughs> I, I really like my weddings.
1: So. Wait, you're, I, this is someone else's wedding, not your oh, wedding.
0: sorry, okay.
1: Yeah, yeah, you don't want to go to somebody else's wedding.
0: I mean, I love weddings.
1: Okay, all right, I'm just the Grinch. I That's... Have
0: a target audience, but I already knew that.
1: <laughs> okay, so the other film that I have that I really, really enjoyed, and it is a little depressing, but it's a beautiful movie, is Relic by director Natalie Erica James. It's an Australian horror film that kind of, in the way that Babadook did, it engages with questions about, it's a horror film that's really about dealing with a parent. The protagonist's mother has Alzheimer's or dementia. We're not exactly sure, but her kind of mental health is deteriorating and her mental capacity is deteriorating. And I'm not going to spoil it because I should also say it's not scary, right? This isn't quite like Hereditary where there are like true horror elements to it. There's a couple of jump moments, but it's not so much scary as it is by the end of the film. There is a multi-generational scene that is one of the most touching and I think like affecting representations of what it means to recognize one's own death or one's own mortality, I have seen in any recent film I can remember which perhaps I'll give myself the caveat of Dea's point earlier on that it's like, I don't feel like I really remember anything from this year. So there could have been like four other films that did the same thing and maybe better, but I loved, loved, loved Relic and 100% recommend people check it out.
2: Sounds good. I actually wanted to see that and then forgot about it.
1: It's great. Go see it. It's like sad, but also very uplifting at the end.
2: Not what you would expect from like a dementia drama or a no. dementia horror story.
1: Yeah, it's a horror story. Yeah. I mean, it's traumatic, but theres it's mostly horror, I guess.
2: Okay, great. All right, my movies. I, I had a very difficult time doing this. I also couldn't remember any movies that I had seen. Now that you guys mentioned going to theaters, the last movie I saw in theaters, which was 100% worth it, was Cats. Um,
1: oh, so good. <laughs> I forgot that even came out this year. That feels like it's from five years ago. So good. It
2: sure does, but it was it was a lot of fun and it was a really like ultimate movie going in theaters experience because as you were saying, Eric, it's like everybody everybody knows what trash this is and everybody knows that you're in it together.
1: 100%. And everybody's high, so...
2: And everybody's high. Yep, (laughs) that's right. (laughs) So that was the last thing I saw in theaters. That is not a movie that I would recommend to anyone unless you are in a theater with other people and and high. But fact is, that's the last thing I saw. Okay, the movies that I would recommend. My top movie of the year also wasn't made this year. It was actually made in 1991, but I watched it this year... And it's called Until the End of the World by Vim Venders. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this movie. No. It's really great. It's almost five hours long. So one of the things that we decided in watching it was that we knew we would have evenings free ahead of us. And so we kind of broke it up into, I think, two or three nights. I think the original is like 20 hours long. It's really, it's really long, but it's really great. So it's a sci-fi movie. It takes place in 1999. It was made in 91, so 99 is the future. And there's a satellite that's supposed to crash into the Earth and eliminate life on Earth as people know it, or at least kill off a large percentage of the people on, in the world. And so there's this kind of ambient panic that's happening. But the movie follows this woman, Claire, and it's great. Like she wakes up in this sort of weird den where people have been partying and she's in this beautiful like 80s 90s outfit and she becomes obsessed with this sort of mysterious man who who she runs into at the train station and he seems to be a thief of some kind I'm not going to give away what what kind of thief he is or what happens but she starts kind of following him and the movie follows her as she follows him and they almost go th- I would say all over the world, like she ends up in Japan, in Russia, and this is not giving anything away, but at the very end, they end up in the outback of Australia. And it's one, the movie is quite beautiful, I would say. It's also very funny. It's inventive. You know, it's always, I think, pretty fun to see representations of the future from the past. (laughs) But It also felt really appropriate that all the characters in it are sort of functioning under a kind of deadline. They think that there's going to be this satellite. I won't give away whether the satellite does crash or not, but that there's an impending doom and they all kind of expecting it. And the other thing to highly recommend the movie is the soundtrack. The soundtrack is really fantastic. One, when they're in the outback at the end, there's all of this aborigines and aboriginal music that is just Which I had never, I frankly had maybe, I mean, maybe I'd heard it in another movie, maybe in like Walkabout or something, which is another great movie that everybody should see. But, so there's that part of it, which is this like very distinct sound and music at the end when they're in the outback. But then in the, sort of in the beginning, it's like talking heads. There's a lot of Elvis Presley covers. It's a really fun, smart, funny, and kind of surprising movie and it lasts five hours. So you don't have to you don't have to think about what you're gonna do the next day or for the next five hours if you do it all in one tie.
1: Which sometimes is a real blessing in these pandemic times.
2: Yep. And I think we watched it on the Criterion collection streaming mm. service because I think they've just done a, a redo or re update or recolorization or whatever it is. So highly recommend it. It's called Until the End of the World. It's by Vim Vendors, who we also actually had on the show that was Maybe the first time that I was a little bit starstruck at one of our guests. And then, okay, and then I've got two honorable mentions. My honorable mention number one is Time by Garrett Bradley, we also have it on the show. It's this documentary, this very beautiful documentary about this family undergoing the father of the family is in prison. And then honorable mention three is a woman, <laughs> it's a movie I'd never seen before, but I'd heard a lot about, finally, it's out this year called Watermelon Woman by Cheryl Dunier. Oh, Um,
1: that's exactly one of the films that I was thinking about why Canopy is so great because it's very difficult to find that film elsewhere. Is it in Criterion Collection now?
2: I think it is. Yeah, I think it's now on Criterion. But it's a 90s movie. Mm -hmm. It's like a lesbian rom-com, kind of a mockumentary, kind of a fiction. It's also very funny. They work in a video store, which was a, a fun thing to see. So I highly recommend that too. Those are my honorable mentions.
1: That's great. I've yeah. never seen
2: it
0: actually. Mm-hmm.
2: It's really good. It's very, it's like it's super worthwhile. And it really does have kind of like a queer rom-com energy to it. That's like a lot better than happiest season.
1: For sure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, which it is better season? than is that happiest with, season.
0: Uh, Kristen Stewart?
1: Yeah. Yeah, which I will admit I was thrilled to watch. I love Kristen Stewart and will watch anything that she is in. Yeah.
0: I don't
1: know what it is about her, but... She's so yeah. captivating. It's like, I just... I will watch anything with her with her in it, but that felt like being held hostage, that movie. <laughs> like, I was there with, like, Kristen Stewart being held hostage by perhaps the worst lesbian girlfriend in cinema history. I'd have to... Well, that can't be right. I'll have to think about that more, but that's my hot take for right terrible. now. Terrible! it seemed like everybody else agreed.
2: Terrible, terrible girlfriend. And also everybody's ignoring Kristen Stewart and pretending like she doesn't exist, while Kristen Stewart is, like, incredibly beautiful and is wearing this, like, custom-made suit that's unbuttoned to her tits. I just don't get it. How is she invisible to the entire family?
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
2: It doesn't make any sense. Anyway, not a movie. I I mean, whatever, watch it. Who cares? But then watch Watermelon Woman and and appreciate that.
1: And feel better, yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: You are listening to the Larb Radio Hour. This is our yearly Best of Edition with co-hosts Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and myself, Kate Wolf. I think I'm feeling like a lot of nostalgia, which I mean I always feel, but then with things being so unsure in the world at the moment, you know. So, but also just you know, the pandemic made me think so much of AIDS. Of course.
1: Oh, um, sure. Yeah.
0: Right, and so and so, I I think there are now like a lot of parallels with like late eighties, nineties issues are like when feel the, the ties seem just so much more obvious. So yeah, it seems mm-hmm. like a time to rediscover um, you know films and and writing from the nineties around you know these issues and uh, like Marlon Riggs is another filmmaker that was featured recently on the Criterion Collection. Um,
1: Tongues Untied. Is that yeah. the one that they, or, yeah.
0: Or black black is Black Ain't, but yeah. Oh,
1: okay. Also a great film. Yeah.
0: yeah. But it, it, I think that is something, and I, I think I felt that maybe less with film and more with literature, but just, I, I think this moment makes everything seem more accessible from for anything from a different era. I feel like just the living, like the, the feeling that you're living through something historic- uh, ties you closer to any other period of history for some reason. Sure. Being it, I feel like everything, I feel like a little bit more of that melting pot of time where I just want to reach out and read things from different times or watch things from different times and it, and it doesn't seem obscure. It just it seems kind of of the present in its own way too. And maybe yeah. that's just because time is so scrambled, but yeah.
2: Also think. because I feel like nothing really felt of, I mean, in terms of like cultural things to to consume culturally, like it felt also that nothing was directly of the present. Like I didn't, I wasn't Mm. seeing any movies that were about, quarantine in 2020 or it wasn't okay. seen right so we're also a little bit like unmoored i think in terms of like cultural representation for a little while aside from like i don't know the decameron if that's what you if you wanted to read sit down and read that but
1: where there was that um there's that korean film alive that got like some play here in the states with ua in in the mm-hmm. lead where it was like a zombie movie that felt like i saw that about like in around like july or august i think And that was one of those that I was like, oh, God, maybe only a zombie movie or one of those like 28 Days Later type situations feels Mm -hmm. like quite like it approaches the, the mass level of the pandemic. But yeah, I agree. All
2: right. What we got next, you guys?
1: Should we talk about TV shows?
2: Sure. Let's do it. Eric, you go first.
1: Okay. So I have two that are like... More or less trash, like just easy consumption that I really enjoyed. The first one, well, the one that is truly trash, I'll just say and get it out of the way, was Emily in Paris. It is admittedly, everybody, it's, yeah, I can see both of you laughing. It's terrible. Also, can't wait for the second season. Like it just, it's so like my, basically also, I think every gay man that I know said exactly the same thing. Hated it, just, but can't wait for more. Because it was, you know, and we all like, and our text message change with like, oh j'adore. Like just said that, because she's terrible, right? She's like the worst kind of American. All the French people are stereotypes of French people. There's actually, it's a show that there are better gifs and memes about it than there were the actual show itself. But I totally enjoyed it. It was like the kind of escapist nonsense that I needed. And in a really horrible way, it felt like traveling. So there was that, (laughs) Um, you know, not the traveling you would want to do or the kind of person you would want to be while you travel, but whatever, it's fun. You guys get it. The second one was uh, the queen's gambit, which obviously like made a lot of waves. Uh, It was a Netflix show. Made waves was like one of the most watched, I think single, I'd have to check that out, but it was like the, one of the most watched, um, shows ever. Like it had the highest viewership or something of certainly any Netflix show, but I think it broke some other records. But that's great. I mean, listeners have probably already seen this. And if they haven't, you definitely should watch it. It's one of those kind of mini series that is great both because it's a series of beautiful scenes and beautiful clothes and anchored by like. A really beautiful woman. So, aesthetically, it's really pleasurable to consume. What I also liked about it, though, and this is technically I should give credit where credit to, this is my husband's line about that show, um, which is that it could have at any point been totally all about her trauma, which there is trauma in her past. But it ends up not really being about that. And instead, you get a really enjoyable show about a girl that just really loves playing chess. And she's really good at it. And it takes her all the way to Russia. And a spoiler alert to no one, I think, she ends up winning the world championship. And so it was great. I totally enjoyed it. I loved every minute of it. It has some interesting queer content that's like a little bit low-key. But that was super fun. The two shows, though, that I think stuck with me most this year... One was the final season of Schitt's Creek, which I actually wrote about for the LARB Quarterly Journal in spring, for the spring issue, I think.
2: The pop issue. For the pop, sorry,
1: for the pop issue.
2: Well, the spring, you can say spring issue, but I just want to direct people to your piece, which is very excellent.
1: It came out in the spring, but it was for the pop issue. Um, And I think that, I'm certainly not alone in this, but I think that that show, particularly in this year with all of its like horrors and traumas, was like a real life raft in terms of a place where we could see people that just got along with each other, supported each other, a place that felt like an escape to a world where people are decent to each other. And that was really excellent and just totally enjoyed it. Obviously, I wasn't the only one either. I think it swept almost every Emmy award that it was nominated for. So it was uh, one that everybody could rally behind. And then the last one that I have, which I really enjoyed, and it's super engrossing, is Alguien Tiene Que Morir, or Somebody Has to Die, by the director Manolo Caro, who also did another series that I adore, which uh, is Casa de Flores. uh, Sorry, Casa de las Flores, or House of Flowers, He specializes, he's a Mexican director. Um, This is actually set in Spain, and it's set in 1940s or 50s, I believe, Franco, Spain. And it involves, there's like a kind of gay intrigue, but then there's also various affairs and the kind of dealings with the dictator and all that kind of stuff. So it was great. It's super atmospheric, and it's really gripping. Again, similar to uh, The Queen's Gambit, it's filled with beautiful people wearing beautiful clothes and... This was just a year where I really needed that, I think. And his work is truly excellent and beautiful, and this was definitely one not to be missed. It's also a mini-series in a true sense. There's three kind of hour-long installments, and in that case, it was just totally great. And a final honorable mention, mostly because I haven't watched all of them yet, is Steve McQueen's uh, Small Axe which is a, a series of several movies about basically kind of Caribbean life in London and kind of dealing with racism in the, I believe it's the late 1960s. And so it's kind of paralleling the uh, Black Panther movement here in the U.S. And it is utterly fascinating. And also in the kind of, as all McQueen's movies are, it's beautifully, beautifully shot and really an emotional viewing experience. So highly recommend, but haven't finished them. So I didn't feel like I could put it as my top recommend.
0: Okay, I'll go. And I only have one because I don't really watch that much television except like real trash. Although I did, which which is why I loved Emily in Paris because um, <laughs> but why else do I watch television but to basically so great. do drugs with my eyes. My favorite show this year was, which got a lot of, you know, a lot of critical acclaim was uh, "I May Destroy You."
1: Oh, I haven't seen it, oh. and it's crazy that I haven't. But it's it is so definitely on my list.
0: This Michaela Cole is so brilliant. The show is so impressive. It's so—it really is the the kind of you know dramedy where it's really funny, almost slapsticky at times. But it's kind of like the humor is woven into the story, and especially the way that friendship is depicted. I think is where a lot of the humor is, which is just the way that friends talk to each other and make fun of each other. And um, and that felt to me so real. And um, I was just overcome, you know, I, I don't even have to get into the story because I'm sure lots of people have seen it, but it's um, about someone who is sexually assaulted and kind of putting the pieces together over um, a number of episodes. And I found it just so moving and, um, Just also the the freedom that the character has, I think, in the moment of not really going anywhere and and being old and with child, watching someone, you know, go around London and go to Italy and um, have a lot of fun was really inspiring. So I loved that show. I'm surprised you haven't seen it.
1: That makes several of us. Yeah. Yeah, I am definitely, it's on my list. And I will make sure that happens before the end of the year. What about you, Dea?
2: Okay, so I don't know why you guys keep dismissing trash as if it's not worth talking about. <laughs> I, I want to hear about your trash. Um, I want to hear about the the Michaela Cole show too, because I haven't seen it and I, I meant to oh, watch it. To it. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, it sounded really good. But I yeah no the thing that I needed to TV for um, this past year was just to like zen out. So yes, I also watched Emily in Paris. It was extremely dumb. Um, <laughs> I thought she looked crazy in every single one of her shots. <laughs> 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 Her outfits are truly insane. Like she looks like a completely insane person. Like she's often wearing like a checkers hat and a fuchsia sweater. And you're like, what is happening? Also, where Ooh, did you chic. get this? Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's
0: like, it's more also just the level of, of you know, like where does she get the money to buy these clothes? You know, like- Exactly. Why on them, like they're, they're like, oh, little messy American girl. But I mean, she's dressed like, you know, to the nines.
2: Exactly. yeah totally okay so i so I did watch that, and I watched that maybe in a day, but the rest of my time, I mostly spent watching the great british Bake off, oh yeah yeah um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had never seen it before, I'd never seen it before this past year, and I one day. I don't, you know, I don't know what was going on, but I was like, I I just I just need some I just need to watch some English people bake. Maybe it was after I finished the Hazel Holt book and and I and I was (laughs) in withdrawal. (laughs) Yeah, I, I was withdrawing from imagining English people bake and I was like, okay, I need to actually watch English people bake. And so I started it and I think on Netflix it starts with season three and it goes up until season, I don't know, eight at this yeah, point? Yeah, that sounds
1: right. I think that's the most recent, yeah.
2: Um, And, you know, for the, the three of us who have not watched the show, believe people when they tell you that the Great British Bake Off is excellent. It's really excellent. And, you know, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a bunch of English people in a tent on a beautiful property, often baking Victoria sponge cakes. There's a lot of talk about sponge. There's a lot of talk about... Um, Different kinds of, you know, they're often confused about things as basic as like bagels, um, and and throws everybody into a dizzy. Uh, babka was just completely. I don't know. I'm I'm only bringing up Jewish. Uh, I remember closets, that but...
1: particular challenge, though. It was like like it was as if no one had ever met a Jew in their life before, and it's like, <laughs> yeah. what is a babka? Like a bagel, this strange disc like bread product. Like, you know, it, yeah, totally. It was crazy.
0: Wait, what'd you say, Kate? Oh, sorry. That, I said, that's just what they make you feel like in Europe. Uh, yeah. <laughs> when you admit you're Jewish, it's kind of like, oh, I've I've
2: met a Jew once time. This is true, but I didn't feel excluded. I didn't feel yeah, excluded yeah. from the fun. No, well,
0: that's the nice thing about the show is that it seems to like have a broad section of people that come on it, right?
2: Yes, it does. It was was just a delight to watch. They all help each other. They are, they're all fussing over their shoe. They, um, they're making their creams. Uh, the show gets a little bit crazy. I also, eventually I got so into it that I dived into the channel four versus the BBC controversy and how, Mm. you know, certain of the judges and, and the host had to change and, And then at at one point I was like, I will remain loyal to the BBC. I will only watch the BBC version of the show. Of course, that didn't happen because who cares if some girl in California is loyal to the BBC? No one. And so I gave in and watched the Channel 4 version too. I highly recommend it. Anyway, that's it. Let's talk about podcasts.
1: Mine are really quick. They're two and they're they're related. So I kind of fell in love with long form or deep reporting podcasts. So I just could not, for obvious reasons, listen to any politics podcasts. You know, politics creeps into the podcast, anyways. But the two that I liked are 99% invisible, which is kind of focused on stories behind kind of design and architecture that shape our everyday life. So, for example, they had a whole um, segment that was about addresses and how addresses work, where they first started, and how we got confusion around them or kind of how different countries also organize addresses. So this sounds really boring the way that I'm out laying it out, but it's like a fascinating story. And then the second one was a podcast from Gimlet called Reply All which I really enjoy. They're kind of stories and and reporting about phenomena that I guess I would say is like generated in or around the internet and kind of digital culture. So they had some great kind of deep dives into... QAnon, Bitcoin, and other, you know, there's just one great one about a random phone number that people kept calling up, and then it turned into the hottest uh, phone line in America. So it was like a sex phone line, right? But the original kind of setup was that somebody was trying to call like a government health service, and they got this phone sex line, and they were like, this is weird. And then when the reporter looked into it, they found that this particular, the hottest phone line in America was popping up everywhere. And then it becomes this large story about how people sell basically 1-800 numbers and the kind of nefarious world behind the 1-800 numbers. So those are the kind of things that I just love. It's like a, a quirky, weird story that just somebody really follows and reports, and then they package it for you in just a a totally satisfying way. So those are my two recommendations.
0: So my recommendation is a very popular podcast. You must remember this. But this season in particular, um, I just loved so much. It was all devoted to Polly Platt. So the title was Polly Platt, the Invisible Woman. And Polly Platt was a production designer who was married to Peter Bogdanovich Mm -hmm. and helped uh, make the look of his well-regarded film, Paper Moon. Um, It was her idea to have it in black and white. And she also worked with him on The Last Picture Show. And that's when he... um, you know, hooked up with uh, Sybil Shepherd and left her. And but the show just tracks her life and it's taken from an unpublished autobiography that uh, Polly wrote, I guess, towards the end of her life. And, you know, she worked on so many films and she was just this like very self-determined woman. The, one of my favorite details is that she was, when she was in college, she got pregnant, and she didn't want her um, partner at the time to know, and she didn't want her parents to know, so she hid. She started to live in a um, in someone else's apartment, and she didn't leave. She just didn't want anyone to see that she was pregnant, so she lived in a room with a mouse until she was ready to give birth. She hid away from the world, and I just, the chutzpah that takes, um, I was really moved by and shocked by. She had a hand in so much. She really is like this kind of, you know, Zelig figure in the film industry of the seventies, eighties and nineties. She worked on the Simpsons. I mean, she was, she also wrote pretty baby, the Louis mall film. Um, but she was never able to, uh, realize her dream of being a director. And so the podcast is in part about why and what the industry was like for women at the time. Um, It seems to be a lot better, but it was just so rare then to be a female director. And um, there's some great stuff. She also worked on a film. She worked on A Stars Born with Barbra Streisand. There's some just great material. So crazy about that film. It was just a, I think think it was just an effective use of what you can do with the podcast because um, reading this unfinished work was a great way to bring it to the world. I don't know if it will ever be published and just, just someone reading it and then weaving it in with the story. I just felt like it really artfully constructed um something that basically you know that audio that an audio story can do and um, it wasn't very sensationalist either which is sometimes my objection to uh you must remember this uh, this was just super straight ahead and really really well done i just loved it
1: cool dea
2: okay so i have uh... Two podcasts that I want to recommend. One is The C Word, which is which kind of surprised me in terms of my liking it. It's on Luminary um, and it's um, with Lena Dunham and Alyssa Bennett. So each episode is dedicated to a particular woman who has a reputation for being crazy. That's the C word that they're referring to. And Lena Dunham and Alyssa Bennett kind of just go through the woman's history and the circumstances which brought many of these women to the kind of reputation that they might have, and often these circumstances were not kind to the <laughs> to the women in question. And they kind of range all over history, and they delve into gossip, and they are there's genuine facts in there, and then a lot of like fun to be had. But they cover every, everybody from you know Mary Shelley to Anna Nicole Smith episodes I really, really recommend. I recommend all of them. They're a lot of fun. But the Judy Garland episodes are truly phenomenal. I've learned a lot about Judy Garland, a lot of the circumstances around her, the various struggles of her life and um, and her talent. So that's The C Word with uh, Lena Dunham and Alyssa Bennett. And there's a lot of joking between them. There, It's a lot of fun. And then the second one that I want to recommend, I have some reservations about it, but I'm just going to do it. It's called Double Threat. It's with Tom Sharpling and Julie Klausner. They're both comedians, they're and comedy writers. The entire episode is often them just riffing on a subject together, and sometimes they don't quite get it, but sometimes it's so funny and goes into really weird directions. And they like and they reference things like vaudeville and a lot of Broadway. And they're all they also do this thing where they kind of tear apart other podcasts. So they listen to um, Alec Baldwin's podcast where he interviewed um, Woody Allen, which is ripe for fun. And they just, I mean, they just like tore it apart, obviously. And they do a lot of kind of like fun little games with their guests. And so I recommend that one too. It's called Double Threat with Tom Sharpling and Julie Klausner. So I think it's come
0: to the time where we talk about the weirdest thing we got into um, during quarantine and uh, if we have any goals for things to get into in 2021.
1: So I can say for myself, there were three things. They're not weird. I mean, like, I don't think they're weird, but, but they were definitely things that I was not doing before. So, and they're kind of throwbacky, actually, all of them. So one was, um, my husband and I both got really into, in a very regressive way, Animal Crossing, which is a game in which you can kind of create your own little island, and you, basically, it's like doing all the things that you can't do from the comfort of your own home. <laughs> so it's like, you got to go out in the world, you got to build houses, you got to get recipes, and now you put together a pine wood chair. And, you know, so it's, it, I don't know. It feels extremely gay or just like an old lady, but it was really, really enjoyable Um, and still is. It's the gift that keeps on giving. I also got back into knitting, um, which is the thing that I feel like before, maybe it's a, that's like a a symptom of something like I'm sliding back into a depression because I feel like that's usually when I start knitting again, you know, because it's like, well, they're just like, it's just the same thing over and over again. Just get ready for it, girl. So that was good. And now I'm actually, there's like a table runner piece that I'm about to finish, which in a a weirdly bittersweet note, because we no longer have a cat, I don't have to worry about it getting torn up. So I can actually put it out and that can be something that beautifies the house. And then the final thing, which is a happy thing, is uh, my husband and I, because of what you were saying, Day, about the beginnings of the pandemic, those first two weeks were like, this will last for like three weeks. Thank God I'm working remotely. I'm going to go to the gym every day. And then suddenly it was like, you can't go to the gym at all ever again. So we got into rollerblading, which is so much fun. And I am definitely living that like gay, late 80s, early 90s, LA fantasy, because as you guys both know, but listeners may not, we live near um, the beach in Santa Monica. So it's like just, we have fanny packs, we've got like a Bluetooth speaker so we can like blast all our jams or going for, you know, about like an eight mile stretch up the, um, on the beach path. So it is fantastic. I 100% recommend rollerblades to anyone. And if you are worried about getting on them, I was totally terrified for the first like, month and a half that we were doing it. But now I feel more confident with my skating and totally, totally recommend it.
0: What if you're kind of clumsy, like like I am? Can you still do it or...?
1: Yeah, I mean, is it,
0: I... Th- is it any more stable than roller skates?
1: You know, that's, like... That is, like, a, a, a debate that we waded into, like, a pretty, like, um, wide-ranging debate online... Technically, yes, if you are on roller skates, it is, so the four, um, kind of in the square formation, you do have more balance, Um, but in terms of maneuverability, uh, which is kind of what you want, especially when you're going like fast on a bike path or something, roller blades are the way to go. Um, the, the downside though, which would not be good for clumsy people like us is that, um, skate dancing is much easier to do in rollerblades than, sorry, in roller skates than it is to do in rollerblades. Very so lucky. what did you guys get into?
0: Uh, I, I have a kind of shameful thing that I got into. I don't know if it's shameful, but it's just strange. Uh, it's also about fitness. Um, because I really like to exercise, but, um, usually I do like, the Stairmaster at the gym, you know, and uh, that I I wasn't, and I'm not good at running. I wasn't really able to figure out something hard for myself to do, um, because I I don't, you know, I guess I I started jumping rope a little bit, but also, like I said, I'm clumsy, so that doesn't work so great. But that, I did kind of figure that out a bit, but then like, I don't have the best feet because I'm old and that's kind of like a lot of shock on your feet if you don't have the right surface. Anyways, this pandemic, I got into um, Tracy Anderson, the method. I don't know Wait. if you can know. She's a celebrity trainer. And she she's one of Gweneth's besties. Oh. So I, I did a lot of research on her. I read like many New York Times articles about her. She was married to a basketball player when she was really young. And um, they have a son together. And she's she's a crazy entrepreneur. She has businesses. I mean, there's like a Tracy Anderson magazine that I was like, maybe I should try to pitch Tracy Anderson. Like, And now she has this online service that costs like... 90 bucks for a month um it's cheaper
1: than a gym that's cheaper than a (laughs) gym
0: and and it does have new content every week and there's a lot of stuff on there but um it's just it's this weird thing of like she doesn't talk to you while you're exercising and and it's like so repetitive like tons of leg lifts and just doing the same thing over and over and it's kind of this fembot quality because there's no voice so it's just Mm -hmm. like this body performing and it's always her and she's very blonde and um very fit. So, and also I think I've been so obsessed with like zoom face and plastics. Like I've been doing, you know, I just, this, the having time to just kind of, and like not having a lot of mental energy, I've gotten into really shallow things this year. Like I'm trying to uncover what plastic surgery people have had done. And I think being, doing Tracy's workout has kind of put me in that mode where it's like all about like defying your age. And she, I love how she says she's designing your body and, Um, It kind of like follows her. It also has this like meta quality because it has like a reality show quality. Like she's first, she's in one locale during the pandemic, like this huge palatial estate in Florida. And then suddenly, you know, you're seeing this farmhouse and you're like, oh, I guess she moved to the Hamptons. Like, you know, she she doesn't tell you, but so you want, it's just this, the whole thing has been really weird. I've never been in like an online community like this at all. I mean, not that I'm like a part uh, on the message boards, but I definitely, you know, I feel a part of it. And it's so, and it's really virtual. I've also never like done something virtually so much before either.
2: That's very cool. I'm interested to hear more also about your uh, research into what plastic surgery people have done.
1: Yes, that's <laughs> always a favorite topic among Angelinos. <laughs> Though it's I guess we're, just, I was into that even before I was in LA. Okay, it's but not yeah.
0: Angelinos, so let me tell you yeah it's very prevalent in Washington. It's just anyone who has to be on television or in public. yeah, yeah and, um, but I just so naive about. that. I think I was thinking everything was Botox for a while. and after mm. consulting some YouTube stars, uh, i oh, I,
1: that's I, just the tip of the rhinoplasty. Totally.
0: oh, yeah, I didn't <laughs> even know people still did that.
1: yeah,
2: oh,
0: Maybe yeah, do. If this pandemic keeps going, that's just what I'll pour my time into.
2: Oh, I'm so excited to see your new face. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully in person um, eventually, but I'll take it over Zoom. Okay. I didn't get into anything as exciting. I did get into Peloton now that we're talking about, I don't have a bike, but you can just take the classes. They're really bad. The yoga classes are really bad, but I do them almost every single day.
0: Yoga Peloton classes? Wait, how do you do it without a bike?
2: (laughs) So Peloton has classes, like a variety of different classes. Like they even have dance classes, which I did try. And they're, oh. even as a former dancer, I was like, I don't know what's going on here. I I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know what's happening. Um, but so you can take yoga classes. I've been doing a lot of yoga classes on Peloton. It's like very sterile, very little personality. But somehow I've I've like grown endeared to the to the Peloton instructors. Okay, so I have been doing that. That is kind of weird. And then my other weird thing that was specifically, well, definitely Peloton was specifically quarantine induced. I would have never done this before. But the other thing that I've started doing is sashiko stitching. I don't know if you can. So Eric, I was also considering doing knitting, but it was so hot in LA. Oh, yeah,
1: that makes sense.
2: I just can't do this, and also it's been so long since I knit; I don't remember anything about it. Anyway, so I was like, I'm going to do visible mending, and there's a method. There's a Japanese stitching and embroidery and mending method. It's called sashiko, and the other plus side about it is that it's extremely easy. But essentially, it's uh, you've definitely seen it before. But it's this. Um, it's usually done on on blue cloth. And with white stitching, and it's usually geometric patterns or repeated patterns. And uh, you kind of go straight across the cloth. And I've now done, you can get like a little Sashiko like kit kind of, but you can buy thread, you buy the special needle. And it's very meditative. It's not embroidery. There's something about embroidery that feels a little too floral to me, a little too chintzy. The Chico is very straightforward. It's usually two. It's just usually blue and white, though I have explored white and brown. These are... This this is generally my color palette, I should say. And it's just geometric shapes. So they're very clean. It's... You can kind of do it while you've got the English Bake Off on in the background. I I feel like you're living
1: in a cozy mystery.
2: Yeah, there's... (laughs)
1: I feel like, I mean, I hope there's not a murder around you to be very clear, but it's like, it feels like you've got all the ingredients here.
0: This
2: is Mallory Madeo, sure.
1: Exactly, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, I w- I'm swaddled in knits. Yeah, that's the goal. Those that those are the goals. Anyway, so I got into Sashiko and then it's a really good way of mending something. Like I've, I have this white, kind of this like white shirt that I really like and it had all these stains on it. And then I just... Sort of like stitch some white thread over those those whites those stains, and now I'm, I can wear this shirt again.
0: That's so cool!
1: That's, great.
2: that's yeah, great. Yeah, that's great. I'm I, so that's my thing.
0: My clothes. So that would I should explore that.
2: It's very easy. I, let me reiterate.
0: One more thing I wanted to say is that I'm really determined. I know last year I was saying I I wanted to help Los Angeles get a progressive mayor, which I maybe that's more possible now that I don't know if Garcetti's going to probably try to join the Biden cabinet but my, my new goal um, is that I, I want to stop the Olympics in Los Angeles in 2028
1: yes yes
0: so that's what I with with Tracy Anderson um, <laughs> pumping me up and guiding me on I will I will try to stop the Olympics in Los Angeles in 2028 and uh, I hope that global ceremony and pomp and um, you know homelessness and uh, cruise ships and so many other things are a casualty of this pandemic and people realize that they are not such great ideas and um, appears to a brighter future in 2021.
1: Yeah. That's literally my only goal for 2021. Just, it should just be better. It just, <laughs> cause it has to be. <laughs>
0: yeah. Thank you guys for for sharing your pics with me and for doing the show. And thank you listener for listening to the LARB radio hour. Thank you. Yay. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the Lab Radio Hour are Madea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlatten. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lux.